Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. This piece is titled Courage, and the courage spoken of in this piece is the courage of coming from the heart and the courage of trusting the way, even though in the beginning of the first few steps of the new journey it seems almost unimaginable, yet that trusting, and this is the courage that uh, I am pointing to here. Courage. Coming into the vast known and unknown depths of a pathless path, the young boy calls upon ancient secrets just now blossoming into form, into view, into visible. Misty mountains arrange themselves just so, and indecision vanishes through tree bark and stone. Barefoot forest floor shows more in mossy definition than crisscrossing grid systems in metropolis expect. Find me now, howls the owl, and Brother Wolf follows close to breathe, not to harm, yet to protect the way. Ants, reptiles, slither unannounced ecstasy of confronting human form. Young boy, look up at the vast horizons, quietly sit now, and in your stillness know more deeply the way. Gentle eyes open, heart arms reaching for true inheritance, passed on dreamscapes. Bloodlines and ley lines, walkabouts, pilgrimages, migrations, vision quests, gypsy tribe. The drum. Sleeping boy awake, heart beat two feet, you human boy awake. Sometimes, sometimes for the first few steps entangle themselves in the last few, combining and incubating the sprouting of divisionless decision, bravery, courage, heart jumping before mind to meet itself just a few paces ahead. That unbelievable garden grows rich soil, flowers, flowers. Flowers, can you imagine all the flowers, tribe, is there now, is there now, boy, ready for your arrival? Father and grandpa and uncle wrap you in ancestral cloth. Mother, grandmother and auntie call you man now. It's okay to howl, 
you have journeyed into your true voice. It's okay to howl now, man. It's okay to howl. You have journeyed into your true voice. Welcome to the Story Paths podcast about the stories we tell and the stories we live. The poem you heard just now is from our guest on the show today, Angelo Rosso. More from him soon. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. This podcast has explored storytelling and story making, yet it's never been as much about technique as about context, I'm realizing. I've wondered what is the cultural context of the stories that I tell? Which cultural stories form the context in which I live and think? Or you could say which stories form the ocean that I swim in and that we swim in? And of those stories, which ones shall I honor and help continue? And which ones shall I honor and help to compost? There are a couple of big cultural stories that have come up, which are coming to mind now in relation to today's episode as stories to compost. One's the story of individualism, of the lone struggling hero or more specifically in this context, the lone struggling artist. My guest today reveals how no art is made in isolation and that this is a beautiful and moving thing. The other story is the divide from nature, man versus nature, as I learned in my high school writing courses, with nature being anything other than humans, or any one other than humans. This man versus nature is linked with the story of individualism in the sense that the human species is not really an individual species, and that we're inspired and empowered and linked with genetically trees, birds, microbes, creatures, as well as stars and planets. When I think of a storyteller, and I invite you to do the same, to think of a storyteller, what do you think of? I think of a person speaking to others in an animated way, perhaps around a campfire, everyone leaning forward and involved. And so it seems that there's this one person who's carrying the stories, and that is part of it. It's not that just collective But this storyteller inherited their stories, gave them their unique flavor as well. They have their storytelling mentors, and of course the audience is listening and contributing to the energy of that story being told. More than that, many stories are actually told by more than one person, with people coming in for different characters, for songs, Some stories are told only when certain groups get together. For myself, I've definitely been influenced by the idea of the lone artist. And it is a lonely thing. Writing and drawing 
may involve a lot of solitary time, in fact, and yet as I enter more into collaborations, as I recently have illustrating a children's book, I feel my own creations becoming richer, and I'm loving this feeling of interconnection with other creators, and I'm noticing the cultural stories that make it more difficult for me and for us. My previous guest, Kester Reed from the Fianna Wilderness School, is a facilitator in a wilderness school for kids. When I was volunteering with that school, I really saw how storytelling, songs, and games are interrelated and how they can all exist in the context of being in a wild setting. And I saw how a very important part of being a mentor is the ability to hold a strong and flexible container for the learning of the mentees. This podcast is, as much as anything, a record of my own exploration, and my journey into storytelling has, surprisingly to me, brought me to community and creative mentoring, both giving and receiving. My guest today is Angelo Rosso, a creative mentor, published poet and writer, and a creative writing coach who is living on the same island as myself, known as Salt Spring Island off the west coast of Canada in Cowitson Territory. In this conversation, we wonder whether artists must be solitary creatures, about where creativity may dwell within each of us, and what kind of patient and caring attention might bring this creativity out. I first asked Angelo about his own journey into creative mentorship. Creative mentorship, where it all started from mainly was my search for a mentor. I was an artist living in New York City in the early 2000s. And to be honest, I had a hard time finding a mentor, someone to look up to. I was in my 20s at the time, and I looked ahead and saw artists and theater actors and theater in their 30s and 40s and into their 50s. And I I found very few healthy individuals that I looked up to and admired. By no means was this judgment. I had a hard time finding someone. So that's what began the search for me, for someone in my world that I could look up to as an artist. As I grew into my 30s and 40s, I needed to see a vantage point, horizon to look to that was inspiring. And so I eventually did find a mentor in Northwestern Massachusetts, a farmer, woodworker, father, community member, leader, and a really beautiful man. And he really taught me in the fine art of, of being a mentor, of being someone to hold space and to show a way of being that is creative and also inspiring and sustainable to sustain a journey in this life, as you know. And so that was the beginnings for me, working with my my mentor, Ricky. And then we started a program working with young boys and girls in high school in a very small town there, an old mill town with very little opportunity. And we started an, uh, like a weekend program with youth. And then from there, it continued to blossom into one-on-one work with mainly teens And then I started bringing in my theater into that as well, a lot of my theater practices. 
Theater games and improv and and that brought a whole new element because it allowed the teenagers to be silly and to play. Being a teenager, there's a lot of posturing. And so it created an opportunity for teenage boys, especially not have to be so like, you know, macho and competitive in, a, in an unhealthy way. They could just be silly and playful and explore that side of themselves. And it kind of grew from there. A friend lent me a puppet the other day, an octopus puppet. And I found myself expressing myself through this puppet in ways that I wouldn't ordinarily because I have my persona and I you know, want to be respectable and I don't want to be seen as absurd, at least in certain company. Whereas with the octopus puppet, it, it gave this permission. So it sounds like what mm. you're saying with the teens there is you can just try this. You can just do this. And of course, it is part of them. It's, it's, we have those parts of ourselves. You can kind of stretch out beyond the beyond the macho man or whatever it is that person's trying to do, right? And really try out different things. Yeah, that's a good point about permission. Theater, mm-hmm. whether it's mask work or clown work or taking on another character, it does give you permission to explore. Especially when you get boys and girls together, the dynamics can be challenging sometimes. But when there's this permission, then this idea of the emergent blending with the intention. Mm seeing what mm-hmm. wants to happen and letting them take the lead in many ways. I'm curious to ask about that coming in with some intentions and then how that can mix with what emerges through the process. I'm curious about that balance that you find or that alchemy between intention or giving container boundaries, uh, leading in determining the direction between those things, which seem like they're very important as well with allowing for that emergence or incurring that emergence or changing your plan if it looks like that's what's being called for. So I'm curious about your own journey with with those considerations and, and your reflections on that. Hmm. Yeah, great question. It is a dance for sure. It's good to have a vision and a plan. And also it's good to lean into the mystery and unknown and see what wants to happen. I find sometimes that it can be quite stale if I go in with too much of a fixed perspective on things, contain something that sometimes just needs to be wild and free and see what wants to happen. It's also important to balance that with structure, discipline, and focus. Yeah, intentionality to what we're doing. So in terms of the emergent, it's almost as though listening. It's all about listening. I know you went to a retreat recently working with little ones and most often, my, my main job is simply listening to what wants, like, what do they want to explore? What wants to happen here? Where do we want to go here? Obviously, trust is a big piece of this, too. It takes time to establish trust. Because initially, we all have our tentacles out, as you mentioned, the octopus. Like, we're all feeling each other and getting a sense of safety with each other. And then once we move through that time, which can take, you know, when I work with young ones, it could take months, honestly. To, to move through that initial making sure this person is someone that I can trust and that they're not going to abandon me. They're here, they're present, they're listening, they're paying attention. And once we slip into that realm of trust and seeing and listening, then magic can really, really, it's like the plane takes off and the initial phase is just we're on the runway, making sure that this plane is, is, is suitable. And so for me, once we're flying, 
for me as the creative mentor to make sure we don't crash <laughs> and make sure we stay in a good place and look out for danger. And then together we're feeling into what, what's emerging, where we want to go, what we want to explore, what's our creative edge, what's challenging us, and that's all conversation and dialogue. Listening, paying attention, creating trust, and then being in constant conversation with how everyone's feeling and, and what people are, what, how people are thinking. Where are we going? Where are we? Where do we want to go? Where were we? I'd like to ask you to speak a bit more about that, that stage of developing trust. It seems like it's something that couldn't be rushed. It's something that mm -hmm. has to be really real. And if there's some things that you wouldn't do in that stage that you might do later on, and some things that are helpful to do in that stage or ways of listening, blocks that, mm -hmm. that come up sometimes in yourself or in the, those that you're guiding. Yeah, trust's a big one. I reflect back to the first time I remember as a mentor saying the words, like young people ask me questions. And early on, I thought I had to have an answer to every question they asked me. Actually, I remember the first time I said these words and it was completely liberating. I said the words, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Or because there was a stage where I thought I had to have it all figured out. And I think it was inhibiting the ability for trust to happen in some capacity, because if I'm constantly in the role of the one that knows everything, then there's a barrier, a blockage between us. But the minute I'm in the same realm of curiosity and wonder and not knowing and figuring it out together, then there's a sense of, oh, okay, we're all in this together. We're discovering this together, especially with teenage boys. Um, I find sometimes with teenage boys, it can be challenging because early on, if you don't have it all figured out, there is a bit of that kind of judging or, but you're the teacher or you're the mentor. But then eventually over time, there's this, no, no, I may be in my 30s or 40s, but I'm still figuring out this life trip just like you are. And I don't have any easy answers. We're going to have to live it together. And we're going to have to figure it out together. And ultimately, that builds the trust. For example, I, I worked with two brothers once, and they had a certain dynamic between them, you know, older brother, younger brother dynamic. And it was challenging sometimes. And it wasn't until they were really able to get to the core of what was going on between them, you know, jealousy, rivalry, being pressured or bullied. And I was simply listening. I sat there the whole time. They didn't try to give any easy answers, didn't try to come in with some kind of wisdom. Or I simply allowed them to, to work it out. And with me being there with them, there was a, a trust that was created almost energetically, that we're, we're here together, working it out, figuring it out. I have no easy answers. Life is challenging at times. And we're going to have to figure this out together and make mistakes mm. and learn. That's beautiful. There may be a preconceived idea that, oh, the teacher should have it figured out, right? I mean, he's the teacher. Like, you know, give me the answers. <laughs> he's an older <laughs> guy. He's meant to have it figured out. But right. perhaps in the long term, if if you give that honesty that you don't, you know, you've got more experience in, in some areas and certainly things to offer, but not that you have it all figured out. It seems that that honesty 
might lead to a deeper trust. Like, oh, this person, they're not giving me a pretense. Mm -hmm. You know, I can count on them for honesty. Very much. Yeah. And I'm curious to ask you in terms of mentors in your life, do you feel what's been your experience with trust with mentors and with, with, with educators or teachers? Yeah, it's for me, you know, I've been, I was in a religious community for a long time and there was some of that pretense of the leaders having it figured out that there's a real difference between the juniors and the seniors which on one hand I felt was healthy because in the culture I grew up in, perhaps there's not enough respect for elders. I felt that was good to have that formal respect for elders. It's something I do feel is important. From the side of the, of the student, I would hope to give some formal respect to a mentor and then at the same time, not to be excessive in that, to not leave space for their humanity. I'm curious to ask you perhaps about the difference between a teacher and a mentor. Like a, a mentor might be closer to the emergent. Or maybe maybe have you found yourself going back and forth where you have a subject that you're bringing across, you have things that you're teaching, but then you're you're also in the role of a mentor, somebody who's supporting a person wherever they are. So I'm curious to hear about that. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I really um, I'm grateful that I don't work in a traditional traditional school setting. A lot of the work I have done has been in people's homes or on farms or connected to nature. So there is a lot of breath and a lot of room for those lines between teacher and mentor to really dissolve. And I can explore and experiment from moment to moment. Um, I do know that in a formal school setting, from my experience, maybe from yours as well, a teacher is very much a teacher in the sense of there's information to relay, there's a timeline, there's pressures, there's expectations, there's teachers and principals and parents and funding and all these different aspects. So there's a lot of pressure and a lot of um, curriculum-based learning and structure within those settings, which I, I would find quite challenging, to be honest. Um, a lot of my friends do work in the school system, and I completely honor that journey, yet I, I don't think it's right, right for me. And so working in a, in a more untraditional setting allows me the opportunity to be the teacher when needed, to make sure the work's getting done, to be on top of them with deadlines, homework assignments, taking responsibility, whether they're being late or they're being disruptive or they're not being present. And at the same time, doing it in a way that is supportive and encouraging. And it allows me that leeway. And if I'm the only one in the room, which most of the time, well, all the times I teach, I'm the only teacher in the space. So there's a lot of freedom there. And a key piece to this is maybe goes back to the trust piece is the relationship I have with their parents, the children's parents. That's also very, very important um, because if... I'm connecting with the parents in a very authentic, genuine way where there's a lot of trust between us. The children can pick up on that. They can pick up on whether or not the parents and I are on the same page and on the same path. And if we're not, they can kind of play on that a little bit. 
in terms of discipline, in terms of taking sides. You know, we were all good at that with our parents, you know, playing the side game. A lot of kids I worked with in the past were raised by single mothers, grandparents, or foster homes. So it's really important for me to, to connect with whoever their, their primary guardian is and make that bond. Because I have an opportunity where I can say and do things with the child that the parents cannot do. And I can shine a light that the parents, because of their position, don't have the freedom to truly do so. That's where the mentorship comes in. You can even call it like the uncle. I've been called Uncle Angelo a lot, you know, because it's like that uncle we all had in our life or auntie or whoever who was able to really take risks with us and show us places that are outside the norm of their setting. Whereas the parents perhaps are more concerned with keeping that safe container. Yeah, you know, they're holding rhythm, it down. The daily rhythm, holding, holding the basics down in a way, isn't it? Yeah. And it might be that if they tried to do those things, it would risk the basics because it's hard to do both. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. hearing in an exhibition in Calgary that the Blackfoot Nation helped put on about their their art and their, their way of life. There was a recording of a man. He was saying, you know, in my community, there was this one uncle in the community that all the kids would go to for discipline. The parents would send all the kids to him for being disciplined so you know the parents yeah. could keep a pretty light touch because oh I'll send you that uncle and oh, what did he do give you a, give him a hard time you know and get it keep him in line get him back back in the in the proper way and the parents didn't need to do that plus all the other stuff of you know making sure there's food on the table and rents paid etc cetera, etc cetera. and it feels it feels more how humans are made to do things you know Mm-hmm. Not just two or three, but but more, you know, circle, village, these different roles that we come into each other's lives in. Yes, very much so. Yeah, what you're speaking of reminds me too of my uncle. And he was still is a wild man. He's in his 70s now. And uh, you know, when I was young, he was in his 40s, 50s. And uh, he introduced so many ideas to me that were pretty uh, cutting edge for the time. I mean, he talked about vegetarianism, veganism, different kinds of practices to take care of your body. And when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, this was a whole world that he was opening up for me. He really planted some seeds that I ended up exploring later in life, um, just to ask myself questions and show me other alternatives of living. There's no one, one right way. There are simply many ways to be. And he showed me a way, not the way, but a way. <laughs> and I'm grateful that he did because it made me explore many different ways and many different paths, as opposed to being in the school system, it's hard to experiment out of that sometimes. I had my uncle and my mother and wonderful people in my life, sisters that were taking on different roles and I'm grateful for them. I didn't necessarily have a mentor in that sense at, that, at my young age. However, the young people I work with now, whether boys or girls, they're really... They ask incredible questions. They're really in there. They're really in there trying to figure it all out and having someone there to bounce that back at them and be in dialogue with them at that age is, it can be a very, very powerful, long-lasting experience of self-worth, of value. Mm. I'm hearing that a mentor can really give validation 
to the person they're helping, uh, especially adolescents, certain parts of adolescents more than others. It's, it seems like all the goalposts are moving, my whole body's changing, my mind's changing, my view of adults is changing, the adults have their own turmoil, which I'm now perceiving more than before. Uh, getting an awareness of the kind of world I'm, I'm born into in the bigger picture, which is, which is pretty crazy in a lot of ways. My peer group at the time were very concerned with being cool, whatever that means, and not being certain other things. It's quite rigid, really. It had a lot to do with what's in the movies, what a man is, what a woman is, according to pop culture. Because, of course, at that point, we're looking beyond our home for reference points. And, yeah, to have, to have someone to be stable and giving validity to some of the inquiries that I may have, which are not inquiries that are aired among my peers. They may have them as well, but these are things that are cool to talk about. It's too vulnerable. So to have someone there who can sit with that and let me know that that is worthwhile, that these inquiries are worthwhile. Again, like you say, not necessarily giving answers to everything, but just that, yes, this it's understandable that you're struggling. I'm still struggling in a different way, maybe not as obvious or as extreme as that adolescent time. But just to, just to be there and validate, give credence to some of the softer inquiries that a young person may make. Which brings us to the arts, really, the creative mentorship, because it seems to me like creativity is or can be a, a real exploration into the subtle, into the vulnerable, into the dreamlike, into the possible, which, is, which doesn't seem probable now, into possibilities that are not commonly discussed. The realm of imagination is so fertile. It's where we first create what we may live into. And it's so important to have that confidence to move in that realm, isn't it? 
and to feel that even if I just dream up a story and it never happens, that's important. I'm practicing, you know, I'm, mm. I'm making something in that realm. Mm. Yeah, well said. Yeah, that's why I really love poetry. I really love using poetry as a tool with young people. Sometimes I'll be working with uh, 12, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, and we're reading so many great poets. We could be reading Emily Dickinson, and they'll read it a few times, and I'll simply ask them, what, what did you take from this poem? What did this poem mean to you? And they're tuned in. They know. They can feel it. They're aware. The imagery that comes up for them, the language, the, the, the intention behind the poem, how it relates to them in their life. I feel like poetry is such a good way in because it's concentrated language. It's really deep language. I have a very interesting relationship because uh, some of the kids I work with are doing a half homeschool, half school, traditional school setting. And, and in the traditional schools, most of the kids these days are on their computers. There's, there's, you know, Google Classroom. Everything's in folders. Everything's on Google Doc. And and so my work is just to get a book in their hand and to to read Shakespeare, to read poetry. Like you said, really activating the imagination and and creating the setting and feeling the words and speaking the words out loud and and then stopping and talking about the line and the words and the rhythm and the dynamic pentameter of Shakespeare and just all of these things is so rich. I think just for me, it's always that it's always starting with, with, with poetry with young people, because they're not really as immersed in it as, as they could be. And it's very easy to access because it's short, but condensed. And so I feel like that's a good creative starting point for me with young people that gets the imagination growing is poetry. And then from there, we can sketch, we can dance, we can paint, we can sculpt, we can go into the forest and do nature connection. But for me, poetry is the way in. It's really the way in. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I love that description of poetry also as condensed words and as, as uh, because it's very short, but very rich. It's something you can really work with in an immediate way, isn't it? Um, of course, you know, you could say, we're going to read this book. And then, you know, we'll come and talk about it. And that can be really good as well. But a book's a, bit, a book is big, you know, a novel or nonfiction. It's, a, it's, it's big. Uh, whereas a poem, you know, you can read it in a minute often. But then at least I know I need to read po- poetry two, three times to begin to get into it. The first time I'm just starting to get familiar with the words and how it's put together. And it's only after reading it a few times I feel I'm starting to soak in. Yeah, I'm curious about these ways ways in, as you say, and also what it is you're looking to enter into. Hmm. Well, I would say that when I was a young person, I was a very quiet person. Uh, I wouldn't say shy. I don't like the term shy. I simply enjoyed listening. I think shy is a bit of a label. I preferred that I was a quiet person. I like to listen and pay. And uh, I also grew up in a big family. So there was a lot of other people speaking often. So I enjoyed simply listening. And I was one of the younger a lot kids of listening in the line. To be done. <laughs> a lot of listening to, to see all of the, <laughs> to learn. I actually learned quite a bit from all the, 
idiosyncrasies of my childhood. And it's in those quiet silences. I used to really love going into the forest during those times when the house was all full of energy and find solace and reflection. And a lot of early inspirations came from my time being in the forest near my home. I'm grateful that I lived somewhere there was a forest and it was quiet, very beautiful gifts that I was given. And so for me, when I'm working with young people, I really want to tap into that place. I really want to get underneath all of the programming and all of the to-dos and all of the expectations and all of the pressures and get to a place where we can just be still and silent for a moment and see what wants to emerge from that place from the place that's not overwhelmed by the rational thinking mind. Like when kids are playing on a trampoline or playing basketball or swimming in the lake, like that place. Like I want to come from a place where there's nothing in the way and what wants to kind of, what does this human being at this time in their life, what are they really curious about? What do they want to really explore? And it takes a bit of kind of shedding all the, like you said, Hollywood and social media and videos online and yada 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 to get that out of the system to really find out what really wants to be explored here really getting into a place that's that's inspirational and um, truly creative in the sense of that just wants to create just wants to create and what wants to be created without any filters without any obstacles Mm. yeah I love that. There's methods to do that. There's some structure, it sounds like, to do that. There's different different ways that you found helpful to do that. That's intention. But what you're really trying to get to is this point where the person you're working with is unencumbered by the various programmings that are there and that that core of them can pulse freely and consider, oh, what shall I do? What shall I do? As opposed to what is being done to me or what is being expected of me. And perhaps we're not asked that question enough. Yeah, it's quite scary too, I I would say, um, Mm. for any person at any age to ask that question, completely honestly to ask that question. Mm without worrying about paying the rent or doing this or doing that. or But to truly ask that question, it can be frightening for, for some. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it really can be. I, I think for myself, I'm transitioning out of being religious in a more formal way. And I'm really coming to see that some of my reasons for getting into that were direction and certainty. A plan for what's the best thing to do. Like, here it is. This is the best thing to do. Uh, And coming to this point of, well, what do I think happens after death? You know, do I think there's a God? What do I think life's for? What, What do I personally think life's for? Not that it's that way for everybody, but what do I feel like my life's for? 
it is an act of courage because it feels like living without rails. It's like, where will I fly? The sky is so big. <laughs> I'm asking for encouragement and I'm also asking for truth and honesty and to be around humans that want to see me thrive and want to see me do well. If you're fortunate in this life to have a rich circle of friends and mentors who are both wanting to see you thrive, be happy and create, and also will tell you when you're going a bit off the rails and who also will encourage you to stay on your star that you're moving towards, that they're encouraging you in, in towards that in a, in a positive way. I've had experiences where that hasn't been the case. And it's been, and young people uh, also are, may have teachers, friends, parents, siblings who are both supporting them in that way and also maybe trying to take them down a path that isn't truly the way that they want to go and feel encouraged to explore. So it's, yeah, having that mirroring is so important. You're fortunate if you do have a rich circle of those friends and mentors. That's a true gift. Or even a few, whatever whatever you yeah. have, you know, kind of piece it together. Michael Mead, the mythologist, often talks about soul. Soul in the sense of each of us have an innate soul or who we really are, who we are in a deeper sense. And that the work of culture and myth and mentorship is really to bring that out. It's something like a seed that we may not know what type of seed is in us, whether it's, you know, cedar or hemlock, but that that seed's there and that it wants to be expressed in this life, in this particular life, you know, that each of us have something that if we're to have a truly filled life, if we're to truly inhabit our life, then it will be in that particular way. And it's an interesting thing because what would it be like to be in community and culture that's encouraging that? And what we often see in community and culture is there's a conformity. This is what we do. This is what we believe. This is what's acceptable and not acceptable. And of course, there's, there's a cohesion that comes from that. There's a coherence that comes from having those agreements. This is who we are. So how can there be a community or a culture where one of the central principles of that culture is that each person's unpredictable, unique, out-of-the-box gift <laughs> can come out? It feels like coherence and anarchy are somehow <laughs> trying to get married and make the relationship work, you know? So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> Yes. I had a conversation with a friend about this a little while ago and we were talking and and what came up for me around that was that where I choose to live. So I choose to live on this beautiful island called Salt Spring and the beautiful southern Gulf Islands off the coast of British Columbia and I'm grateful and so fortunate to live here. I also choose I choose to live here. I live here on purpose. And I'm choosing to live here because I want to live a certain quality of life. And what this quality of life allows is the opportunity for spaciousness and for a slower paced way of being. And what that brings is opportunity for reflection, opportunity to 
to read, for example, this afternoon before our call, I sat and I read a book with a cup of tea. I think one of the highest moments of like life is good if, if one has time in their afternoon to sit, look out the window and read a book and drink a cup of tea, that's pretty good life. For me, that's high, high stuff. And, and so, but that allows, going back to this idea of why I love working with poetry with young people is it seeds the soil. It's that slow time that allows reflection and allows inquiry and allows questioning. And sometimes in those moments, my whole life can flash before my eyes or asking myself deep questions can come as I'm reading a book, I'll put it down and, you know, where am I in my life right now? I'm just doing a check-in spontaneously here. But that dialogue is rich and alive on this land, on this island, because it urges that kind of conversation. So for me, place is very important. Not to say it can't happen in cities. However, I feel like there needs to be a table set for that, for that form of conversation to happen, for, for that kind of inquiry to happen. I mean, if there's a classroom of 40 kids, I highly doubt that the level of conversation, at least that I want to have, is going to be able to unfold in a classroom of 40 children for an hour and 20 minutes, a few days a week. So I think it goes back to choice in terms of as I grew older, I realized I wanted to live a certain quality of life, a certain way of life, and I had to make choices to set myself up in a place that allowed for that conversation to be primary in my life. And then from that place, I like to engage with others that are at least curious about having that conversation as well, or have the potential of wanting to engage in a certain conversation without it being forced. also part of your community it's part of your circle of connections that you're surrounding yourself with oh yeah i mean i'm looking out this window i'm seeing the light moving through this beautiful maple tree and i remember this maple tree this past winter where there was no leaves and it was all skeletal and bare boned and now it's summertime and the tree's fully leafed out and the light is hitting the leaves and it's getting nourished and I already know at the same time 
that the root system is preparing already for autumn. And there's a cycle. And so being on this land reminds me of cycles of life. And it's the remembrance of the cycles of life that keeps me tuned in with the knowing that I too shall return to the root system and dissolve. And it just keeps me remembering my place. As Mary Oliver says, my place in the order of things. So the land definitely keeps me grounded as it does <laughs> to that knowing. And that's why it's vital for me and my work to be connected to the land. Pattern of wave and wing Roots and horn The ways they bring With fabrics torn Those who were here to hear Human footsteps woken stones and scales and spores Praises now be spoken Soil sky womb hums to tender eras Broken times past and to come Aching rivers open Hey, hey, hey I see a time when earthly ways are held high. Hey, 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 when the soil of the earth is as holy as the sky in which she spins with us upon her, and we know. Pattern of hoof and drum, paw print and song. Sounds are sung through darkness long. Songs of fluid bone, constellations awoken, rivers under stone through human. See a time when earthly ways are held high. Hey, when the soil of the earth is as holy as the sky in which she spins with us upon her, in which she spins. With us upon her In which she spins, spins, spins With us upon her And we know Yeah, it feels intrinsic to what we're talking about, that connection with the land, that gift, you know, that each of us have within us something to bring out, something that's important to us, something that we want to do, that we want to create, that it's at the same time unique 
and also very much connected with others and connected with the land. It's a gift received and it's a gift given. It's of service. So it's not something I could just go to a mountaintop and meditate and, okay, I've, my gift has come out. It's something very relational. I think of community to help bring that out of each other. Then we see like, oh, that's, that's growing in you and this is growing in me. And then there's another possibility. What might we do together? It feels like the birth of deeper human culture in a, in a humble but wonderful way. These kinds of inquiries, really. Because all our practical decisions will be determined by those emerging values. It's very relational. You know, it's not me, I'm going to come out and be the hero. I'm going to be this unique genius, artistic genius. What we don't often see is that that's so isolating for the person who's adored in that way. You know, you hear these rock stars and things. It's like They can't go outside without a disguise. There's people rooting through their garbage. You know, it's like... They, they can't just make friends. It's, it's, what do we do to creative people? Put them on stage and everybody's adoring them. And then when they misbehave, then we scandalize them in the press. I don't feel that we're treating, as a society, we're treating our creative people and really the creativity in each of us in a healthy way. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of good, a lot of good. A lot of good shared there. Yeah, there's a lot. Wow, yeah. And I feel that going back to this idea of when the young person or even the adult or whoever is in that quiet space and something is revealed, something moves through, which is constant always, (laughs) then there's an opportunity to work on it a little bit so that it can be brought out into the world in a way that it has some legs, it can move, and it's not going to get shunned so quickly. It's robust. And once it's robust from community and friends helping support that seed into more more of a sprout, and then it grows a bit stronger, then you put a little protectant around it so that no one eats it up, and then it grows even taller. And that comes with patience, and it comes with discipline. So many... um, cliches of the artist that need to be thrown out i mean it's communal it's always communal no matter if you're alone in a room painting on a canvas all of that experience that's moving through your body is from humans you've interacted with experiences in your life who birthed you and you where you were surrounded there's all this communal conjuring happening at every moment so I, i also don't agree with the kind of lone wolf alone in their cave creating art and then they come out and bring it no it's we're all incubating our art together, whether we know it or not. It's a communal form. And then when it's given to the community as a gift, which in its best form, it is a gift to the community, then it's there to remind us of why we're here and of who we are and of where we're going and where we've been. And yeah, we put this, we put professional on, on these things and we put price tags on these things and and of course, artists should be compensated for their work. There's no question. I think that art has value in our culture. And there's no reason why artists can't live a good life and, and live a good life of means. However, this idea that some are artists and some are not, or art looks this way and not that way, I don't really subscribe to a lot of that. I think it can be harmful and damaging. Because it does affect the early seed, because someone may see they're creating something small and beautiful at first, and it needs time to breathe and grow. 
But then they'll look at someone else and say, oh, they're so good. They're so great. I'll never be as good as them. And they'll just squash it. And I've done that myself as an artist. And that's so harmful. We all have something to offer in our unique way. And it just needs time and space. To, and that's why we're working with young people. It's that listening part is so important because that five, 10 minutes that I listened to them in that moment as they shared a vision or a dream may go on to grow a business or grow a, who knows what, you know, what could come from those 10 minutes of listening. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm reminded of something that said about Michael Faraday, who was one of the first to harness electricity. Mm. But a lady came to one, an exhibition. There was an exhibition of electricity and, you know, things were lifting up due to static. And there was a couple other things going on in the exhibition. And she said, you know, this is all very interesting, but what's the use of it? And he replied, ah, what is the use of a newborn babe? <laughs> <laughs> Just eating and yes. pooping, you know? <laughs> eating, pooping, crying. But what might come, you know? <laughs> yeah, those early stages, like it's such a good point. Yeah, those early stages it takes a lot, especially in the beginning, you know, like it's so true. Like just be in those early stages. It's not it may super not look romantic. Like much, no, you know? right? and it's, you it may, may not, not look, look like much. much. And yeah, you compare it to somebody who's at a later stage, it looks so developed. It's like, man, I just got to bit of tinfoil and some gum here like what's the point of even trying <laughs> this person's got a whole operation going on but yeah it can it yeah. can grow that's the thing it has to grow it doesn't start from there right it doesn't start from a later stage no it starts from the very first step oh my gosh yeah very first step well i want to ask yeah. you to share anything else that you'd like to to speak, speak about in the topic or discuss. Well, I wanted to thank you, Theodore. This has been wonderful. And I would share that what I enjoy most is what we're doing now, simply showing up and trusting that something, something will happen. I mean, I'm sure you had your own intentions going in. I had mine. We sat. And there was that third thing that the mystery revealed itself as far as what what uh, wanted to be discussed between us. And the emergent was also allowed to breathe and grow. And I think it's very poignant to the, to the theme of the conversation about creative mentoring in that it is a lot of about intention because I don't want to be the type of person that says, oh, no, you don't need to have any, no planning is necessary. No, you have to do your work. And I also believe in throwing some of it away and leaving room for the mystery to, to reveal and to lean into that as well. And, listen to what the the mystery wants to share because it's always there and it's constantly abundant. And so often I feel even in my work, I tend to shy away from the mystery, uh, but I'm learning as I'm getting older to lean more into it. Yeah. I love that. I find myself feeling that way as well and being less impatient to say, yes, but what's the point or what is the practical outcome or, you know, how can we make money off this? Or how can we make a project out of this? To sit with that that emergence for some time. And I'm I feel less faith in my predetermined ideas than I used to. When they start to come up against the mystery of the universe and the emerging themes in life itself, yeah, I could probably just leave those and, and be here by the fire. <laughs> 
see what comes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not that it has to be like I, like I had intended. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a beauty and a, a wildness in that really, isn't there? The wildness. Well, I really want to thank you as well. You're very generous with your consideration and your thoughts and your uh, sharing what's alive for you and really being in this third space. Mm. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next month to dive deeper into these topics. In the meantime, if you'd like to support this podcast on Patreon and get some special bonus stories and artwork and such, you can go on over to Story Paths at Patreon. Also on Instagram, Story Paths, one word, underscore podcast on Instagram. If you'd like to discuss some of the points in the episode... And I am excited and nervous to announce that I'll be holding some story-making workshops online. So this is where we get together with artwork, with song, with movement. We're creating characters. We're reflecting on each other's characters. We're bringing our characters into settings and stories together. So it's a very collaborative process. I've heard some good feedback from students who've been in some small initial groups that they find it a very safe space and a very fun space to be creative and interact with the creativity of others. I'm going to be doing this as a pay-what-you-want drop-in course, probably on a weekly basis and perhaps with some other offerings developing out of that. I don't have an exact date yet, but if you're interested, you can sign up in the mailing list linked in the show notes. And within the next month or so, you should get some news about when that's going to take place and how that's going to look. And if you're listening to this episode well after it was aired, uh, I hope you're doing well there in the future. You know some things I don't. Um, Please send important information to me back in time. But besides that, I think these offerings will still be going on, so do feel free to sign up for that mailing list and you should get some updates about the uh, story-making course. Okay, best wishes and look forward to connecting with you here in this virtual audio way next episode. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.